Shauna's local gardener presents Shauna and Dorothy Doby, the editor and publisher of Canada's local gardener magazine, I Here For You. Hello and welcome to Canada's Local Gardener podcast. I'm Shauna Doby and I'm here with my mother, Dorothy. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. I'm Dorothy Doby and welcome to the podcast. And today we're here with Sherry Verse-Lewis. Is that how I say your name? That's correct. <laughs> okay, Sherry Verse-Lewis, who is, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, Sherry. Well, I am the owner of the Preferred Perch, which is a wild bird specialty store in Winnipeg, Manitoba. And I've just celebrated my 25th anniversary in business. And uh, my passion is nature and wild birds. And the songbirds uh, play a very important role in our world. And their, you know, populations are declining more and more every year. My passion is educating people about wild birds and uh, learning to enjoy them in their backyard because I feel When people pay more attention to nature, they seem to be more respectful and cautious of the decisions they make in their lives of uh, how it may affect nature. So, Mm -hmm. so yeah, so my store has diversified quite a bit over the year, like that is our main business, but we are also like a garden decor store. And we also branched into the rocks and crystals uh, world about eight or nine years ago. So it's a very unique store. It's a Manitoba made business and I run it all on my own and have all these years so it's it's like my husband my everything my all in one is my business well that and the birds right sherry because you are a little bird crazy right yes (laughs) i am a bit of a bird nut yes there is no question how many birds do you get in your yard every year oh well in respect to the numbers of species i mean there's you know probably 40 different kinds come through my backyard. But for example, this winter, I had an amazing flock of red poles coming in. I had anywhere from 100 to 200 birds of that species alone in my yard at a time. Red poles. What do they look like? Yeah. So they're a lovely little winter finch and they're, they're small. They're only about a few inches uh, in length and Mm -hmm. they have a, a brown and white and gray body, but the females have a very bright red cap on the top of the head. And the males have that red cap along with a lovely rosy breast. Yeah. Okay. So they're beautiful little finches. But you should ask her, ask Sherry, because this is astounding, how much bird food she goes through, bird feed, I guess, every year. (laughs) Okay. Sherry, how much bird feed do you go through every year? (laughs) Well, just to give an example, just on these red poles alone, I was feeding them shelled sunflower seeds. Mm -hmm. And I went through about 700 pounds of that just in this winter, just for the red poles. So that didn't include the the other sunflowers and nuts and in, and suet and all the other different things I offer. But uh, that was how crazy those numbers of red poles were for me. <laughs> so wow. how big is your yard? I'm very fortunate. I live uh, just outside Winnipeg mm-hmm. uh, on a 22 acre property. Okay, so okay. I have a lot of habitat okay. here and I uh, really take advantage of attracting all the wildlife I can while I'm here. Okay. And all your profits go into the birds, right? 
when yes. you're from your store. I mean, you have to work really hard to feed those birds. That's right. To pay for my habit. Yes. Well, yeah. All those sunflower seeds. I mean, that must cost quite a bit. Uh, it does because, you know, a, a, a 50 pound bag of that goes for close to $100 for the shelled sunflower seeds. You know, when they're when they're in the shell, they're about $35 a bag. So it is quite a expense using the shelled. Mm-hmm. But uh, I tend to like to spoil my birds and give them and what why, they like. <laughs> why do they Why do they need shelled ones? It's not that they need it. Uh, they definitely are able to crack open the black mm-hmm. sunflowers. Uh, you know, if that's what I had out there, which I do have some feeders filled with that, but they they just prefer it out of the shell because then they don't have to work for it. <laughs> and it certainly keeps the yard much cleaner. <laughs> you know, you don't have a lot of shells on the ground come spring. It's nice and clean. So that's another thing as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you had the red poles. What else did yes. you have this year? Well, there's always these staples, I call them, which are, of course, the black cap chickadees, the blue mm-hmm. jays. I get quite a variety of woodpeckers. I get downies, hairies, and pileated woodpeckers coming. Um, I get white and red-breasted nuthatches, and um, I had a few ravens that were coming around, which were very interesting to watch. And I think that was about the majority of what I had this winter coming to the feeders. Okay. But spring, spring, it's that brings in a brand new batch of these guys coming back from the south, right? It does. And you know what? This morning I went out to fill the feeders and I was welcomed to the glorious song of a meadowlark. So that certainly is a, a beautiful thing to hear. And the dark eyed juncos are here. So they were out there trilling. So migration has started for sure. So it's mm-hmm. uh, it's interesting how crazy nice the weather is already. So it should be interesting to see um, if a lot of birds are going to be showing up sooner than they normally would. Mm-hmm. So now not all birds. OK, I was surprised to learn recently, for instance, that American robins don't all fly south for the winter. Did, did, were you, did yes, you know we that? Yes, like- we're finding each. Yes, we're finding each winter more and more of them are staying back and not just robins, but also morning doves, flickers, mm-hmm. juncos. So there's been a lot of species that are starting to stay back more and more. You know, what what that is, it's hard to be certain. But I mean, obviously, climate change is is a huge contribution to that. I mean, our winter here in Manitoba this winter was it was unbelievably mild. Mm -hmm. We only had a couple cold snaps. And, you know, when the weather stays that nice, I mean, is that changing their migration pattern that they're not as instinctive to leave as in the past? I mean, that's all something that's kind of being evaluated because it's really just been happening more and more over these past I'd say I'd probably say over the past 10 years we've seen an increase in it you know every winter it was like one or two robins that we'd hear about and then then the next winter there was a dozen and you know more and more and then this winter I just can't believe how many varieties of birds actually stayed back Mm -hmm. so we're also I mean, the majority seeing of them do survive when they end up in a yard where people are looking after them and putting out foods that'll assist them. They usually do end up surviving. So we're also, we're also seeing some birds coming into this area that we know that normally don't quite this come quite this far uh, west or north. And we get from year to year, we get a lot of uh, cardinals along the river, for example. 
Do you? Yes. And another interesting bird is um, red-bellied woodpeckers. Their normal most northern range is Minnesota, mm -hmm. but they've been moving more and more into um, Manitoba. And we've actually got several confirmed breeding pairs, as well as the cardinals, as you mentioned, Dorothy. There's been a couple of confirmed breeding pairs of them as well. So it's interesting to see new species moving into this range and successfully reproducing. Yeah, you know, they don't know on Wikipedia that you guys get cardinals. <laughs> well, we I, always look up all the different birds. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's it's, according to Wikipedia, that's not their range. But what do they know? It is. <laughs> Sherry knows more. Yeah, that's right. So, okay. <laughs> yeah, they've yeah. been definitely cited here over the years and, and more and more being seen each winter. So, and year round, actually. I would guess that birds that eat. Um, seeds and berries and things would be okay through the winter you know even with or without bird feeders what about birds that eat insects and worms i mean how can they survive yeah that is more challenging like for example there was a an oriole a baltimore oriole that had stayed back this winter and that's the third time now i've heard of that happening mm -hmm. so again with these ones you know you wonder was there some kind of injury or something that it stayed back but I mean it was certainly flying and eating well but Orioles are strictly you know insects and berries and fruit that kind of thing so um, the one customer this winter had it they were supplementing it with things that it would eat but you know eventually one day it just stopped coming so chances are it did perish because once they're here you know that far into winter they're not going to choose to migrate at that time so so chances are that you know birds like that it, it's rare that they survive the whole winter i mean when we start hitting those deep cold snaps it's very hard to survive the nights you know the nights are longer and they're deep mm -hmm. cold it was a so mild winter but we had a couple of weeks of minus 45 and that's going to do in mm -hmm. anything birds people <laughs> exactly and that's pretty much that's right that was horrible that was a very <laughs> deep cold spell that one so yeah, mm -hmm. that's rough. But okay. but not all birds who eat that eat insects, they also eat some vegetarian stuff and vice versa, right? Yeah, like that Oreo, for example, um, we were supplementing it with dried mealworms and suet as well, like the peanut suet. They were eating that too. And the shelled sunflower seeds, they were able to eat that. So, you know, they're, <clears throat> they, their beaks aren't designed to crack open a lot of some of the seeds we might offer, but um, you know, we were putting out what we could for it and it was absolutely eating it. But like, say, eventually it just stopped coming. So it obviously that cold, those cold nights obviously took care of that, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Oh, my goodness. Um, where do they live in the winter? I mean, some so, birds have nests and would they get full of snow or? Well, they wouldn't reuse like open concept nests, like a robin's nest, you know, and that type of thing. They won't use stuff like that. They're usually looking for thick shrubbery or dense trees, or some birds even use old cavities of woodpecker holes uh, or natural cavities in trees. So it just depends on the species, what they're going to do. And some some birds will even roost together in trees and share their body heat. Um, a lot of the birds go into a state of torpor in winter where they lower, lower their metabolism so that they can conserve body heat. And most birds that stay here grow an additional, you know, about a thousand extra feathers in winter to help insulate to stay warm. So it's amazing how Mother Nature uh, looks after them to be able to do what they got to do to survive. And what about, what about... 
all huddled together <clears throat> in the cedar trees or something like that, because you wouldn't think that they would have that instinct to sort of, you know, close up to each other to get the uh, the body heat, but they do, don't they? Right. They like to snuggle too in winter. <laughs> <laughs> what about birdhouses? <clears throat> so some birds will use uh, birdhouses. There's also something called a winter roost, which is like a extra large birdhouse where they have perches inside. So the birds that would roost together, like chickadees, for example, will mm -hmm. will go inside of these things. But a lot of people do leave up their birdhouses all winter long so that they do have somewhere to roost in them. But do they go and in again, them, Sherry? Some, yes, yeah, some do. Yeah? Like Good. chickadees will. They'll often use a birdhouse if it's left up all winter. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Hmm. Okay. Uh, aside from the sunflower seeds, what do you feed birds in the winter? You, you mentioned suet, peanut suet? What what does that mean? Yeah, so suet is, uh, it's rendered beef fat. So the beef fat has been rendered down and mixed in with a lot of different ingredients. So peanuts are usually the main ingredient that's mixed in, but a lot of them also have fruit like raisins or cranberries mixed in. Mm -hmm. And then others have mealworms and even crickets added to them. So there's quite a, a variety of suet available for winter time. And it's obviously with the fat in it, it's a very high calorie food. It's definitely the attraction for any of the woodpeckers in winter. That's certainly their prime food to, to be attracted to at a feeder. And nuthatches also will eat that and chickadees. So it's a, it's a great food to offer in winter time that uh, gives the birds calories a lot of people wonder like why suet became something to feed, but it, it's, it was first observed when an animal would die in the woods. So say a deer died, mm. the ravens come or coyotes mm. or wolves come and open up the carcass to eat it. And once the suet was exposed, which is the very clean fat located around the organs of these animals, mm. songbirds were observed coming to eat that. So venison and beef suet are very similar, and that's why beef is more readily available, that it's made with that. Uh, but that's how the concept of feeding suet came to be. But you don't want to be giving birds bacon fat, for example, right, Sherry? Well, that'd be so Absolutely not. Pork in general is uh, much harder for them to digest. And bacon fat, of course, is loaded with salt. And we all know salt is very dehydrating. So in winter, we certainly don't want to be giving them something that's going to cause dehydration when they're out there day and night, you know, surviving in these kind of temperatures. So, so yes, it should only be beef or venison that is used. Oh, okay. Okay. We're going to just take a little break and check in with Ian, who's going to give us a couple of 10 neat things. Thanks. Here's a little tidbit. The importance of pigeon poop. At one time, pigeon poop was the exclusive domain of England's 17th century monarchy, King George I. The reason? Pigeon droppings were the main source of saltpeter, used in making gunpowder. Did I hear right? Life-saving pigeons? A US team of Navy researchers has found that pigeons can be trained to see life jackets floating in the water far better than humans. On rescue missions, pigeons were trained to peck a computer keyboard when they spotted a life jacket from a helicopter flying overhead. What a clever little bird. Over to the super-powered pigeon. Pigeons can hear sounds 11 octaves below middle C, which allows them to detect earthquakes and electrical storms. 
but you can see in colour and can also see ultraviolet light. Their eyesight is very acute and it is said that a normal film running at 25 frames per second would seem like slow motion to a pigeon. Pigeons can live up to 30 years. Now that's a lot of age for a little bird. here with Sherry Verse Lewis, who's telling us all about birds in winter. Um, Canada geese, you haven't mentioned them yet. People love to hate them. Yes, it is. Uh, it is very unfortunate how, you know, I hear different things that they're flying rats and all kinds of horrible terms used for them. But, um, you know, they're a naturally occurring species here mm -hmm. and they're you know, I know they can be messy sometimes in the parks, but a lot of those messes are contributed by what people go and feed them at the parks. So mm -hmm. people have this idea of going to the parks and feeding birds bread mm -hmm. and bread obviously is not a suitable food. I mean, there is no bread available in nature. It's not something that is a natural food source and it causes a lot of problems with geese. So first of all, you know, they gorge on the bread because it's soft and easy to eat. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that'll happen is they swell. They in their mm -hmm. crop where the bread is, it swells, which is very uncomfortable for them. Oh. And then as it digests, they end up with diarrhea because oh. they're eating such a poor quality food. And then of course that's what makes all these messes in the in the parks and area where people tend to co complain about that. Mm -hmm. And then the bigger issue is when they have these high diets mm -hmm. of bread as they grow or so if they're young geese as they grow this will happen or the adults as they're molting their old feathers and growing new ones they are so nutritionally deficient from eating so much bread that they develop something called the angel wing syndrome oh. and what that is is their feathers grow in very oh. improper due to the lack of nutrition and it's very painful so they hold their wings in an odd manner which is where they get the, the term angel wing because it almost looks like angel wings. If you think of when you see an angel, the wings kind mm -hmm. of extend out beyond their shoulders. Mm -hmm. um, so the geese like hold their wings out in an odd way due to the discomfort and odd growth of the feathers. And then they're not able to fly. So oh. it is a, it's a big problem. So yes, people don't like geese, but a lot of um, the problems that people tend to not be happy about in the city areas are in parks and that kind of thing where these messes happen. And unfortunately, some of that is human caused in these cases. So what, what should you feed so them, people, Sherry? If you do go to the park, to feed them, yeah, if you are going to go to the park, you should be feeding them cracked corn or even a basic wild bird mix that you can bring. And that way that they'll eat that and that will make a big difference in their health and also the messes. I mean, obviously, there's still going to be some mess because they are living creatures, but it's just not going to be as severe as it can be when they're gorging on these. I mean, I've seen people show up at the park with loaves and loaves of bread, Yeah, you know, and the, the kids are there throwing yeah. bread all over the place. And yeah, so that that's a big problem for sure. But geese, you know what, they... Of course, I'm a little biased because I'm such a bird lover and I tend to find the beauty in all of wildlife. So I do have geese that come to my property every summer. And I mean, they're such a dedicated bird to each other. Um, 
you know, they mate for life. They're so bonded. Um, yeah, I think humans can take some lessons in that dedication mm-hmm. to each other sometimes. That, that's one of the <laughs> so. interesting things about uh, some birds. And I don't, it always, I think, astounds people to learn that birds actually, when they mate for life, do mourn when their mate dies, particularly mm-hmm. geese oh, and crows. You're not kidding. It's very true. The wildlife rehab center out here, for example, if uh, say a goose was hit by a car and killed on the side of the road or injured, they actually will take both of them back to the center because it it is such a serious state of grief that they go in if they lose their mate that um, they often rehab that bird, you know, with their partner if it's going to live or they just rehab it for a bit to, you know, Help it, it before time. they release it. It's it's really amazing how they do grieve. Yeah, and do, and crows too. Of- I was just going to say crows. Uh, this has been documented where if one of their mate, if one of their their group dies, they will come and they'll they'll sort of hover for fifteen or twenty minutes. Sometimes they'll lay a little gift beside the dead bird and then they'll fly off. So they're going that's through a grieving process. Yeah. Do any of the Canadian absolutely? Geese- yeah, that's been observed many times. Do any of the uh, Canada geese stay through the winter in Manitoba? Because they do here. Yes, they do. And yes, they do here as well. And this winter, more than normal state again, because we were so mild, the rivers didn't freeze at all here. There was a lot of areas of open water. So this winter, there was even more than normal that stayed back. Yeah. So, but we do, we have ducks and geese that stay every, every year. The Sturgeon Creek area often has an area that's open all the time. So there's ducks and geese that stay there every winter. But even this year along the red, there was a lot of open areas that they stayed. So mm-hmm. and birds are a lot smarter. Birds are a lot smarter than people think they are. And I love the stories about pigeons because they're they're super smart. But uh yes. I mean, we just don't give them credit for because they got small heads. I guess we think they have small brains, but they're smart, aren't they? Well, that's right. People always, you know, tend to call somebody a bird brain when they're trying to imply that they're not so smart. But birds are incredibly intelligent. And uh, I mean, if somebody calls me a bird brain, I'm going to take that as a compliment, no matter what they (laughs) intended to mean by it. So, yeah. So, no, they're brilliant birds. I mean, just so many things about them, even the migratory species, you know, to think some of these birds spend two months flying here and back to South America and follow the same patterns and land at the same trees. You know, they've documented all of this by banding these birds. And it, you know, it's, it's just remarkable on the fact that they follow star patterns and things like how, how can these creatures hatch out of a little egg and be born with such brilliance? You know, it's really quite something. What's a star pattern? So the stars, you know, they're, there's all the different patterns of the stars and planetary things. And they've documented that the birds actually follow those. So most, almost all songbirds fly at night Mm -hmm. and they rest and eat during the day. Mm -hmm. So they're mainly uh, nighttime migrants and that that's what they follow as their guides to where they go. Isn't that funny? I never thought of birds flying at night. Yes. Yeah. The songbirds mostly do. Yeah. Huh. Well, I'm learning a lot here. Okay. Um, <laughs> are pigeons, they're not native to North America, are they? You know what? I'm not sure entirely if they were an introduced species. Um, 
but obviously they are very prolific and again you know uh, a problem in some of the the downtown areas of most cities because they tend to be all over the roofs of the buildings and causing some mess there as well we i, I will admit we do yeah. have a problem here uh, our neighbor a few doors down a lovely woman she feeds the pigeons she has hundreds coming to and and we live in very small houses and yards she has hundreds coming to her and they will you know they expand outward and we had at first we had a couple nesting on our porch and I thought oh how charming um no it's not charming because yes uh, you know they 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 poop everywhere and it's hard to get rid of and they do had to put up bird spikes around our house um and now it's okay you know I don't blame them I'm just wish they'd go away. no it is true their their droppings yeah their droppings are are very hard to get off it's a very different texture than some of the other bird droppings and it is very very messy for sure mm-hmm. so that i mean it is a legitimate problem absolutely so but something um, people yeah, they're might not, not something think most about. people would want nesting around their house in cities sherry something you told me before um that people may not think about particularly big cities with a lot of high buildings and windows birds die by the thousands especially mm-hmm. if it's a new building right sherry oh it's unbelievable the the three main causes of decline of songbirds are windows that's a huge one there is they say during migration that it's about three to five million birds each day that die hitting windows in north america wow. and free roaming cats are another issue wow. and then of course climate change is really it's starting to show uh, it's affecting but yeah, windows are an unbelievable problem. Um, there's been a lot of awareness brought to, again, we just talked about the migrating at night. So a lot of office towers leave their lights on at nighttime. And what they were finding is the birds were crashing into these buildings on cloudy nights because they weren't seeing the star patterns and they were being drawn into these lights of the buildings and just crashing into them and dying that way. So there's been a, a big push to not have buildings leave their lights on at night during the peak of migration in spring and fall. Mm -hmm. I know it's a very big deal in Toronto. There's a huge group out there called FLAP, the Flight Awareness Program, and they've really been educating the buildings in that uh, city to turn their lights off at night. And there's people who daily during migration go around these buildings picking up the dead or injured birds and, and looking after it. And they they document, you know, what they pick up every year. And it's just astounding. It's unbelievable. And to think that some of these birds are literally declining at rapid rates strictly because of hitting windows. It's, you know, it's such a preventable thing. And all people have to do is put something on the exterior of the window. There are many products available now. There's sprays that kind of give a mattifying look to your glass. There's different types of decals that are available. And the latest thing is something called dot technology. And what they are is they're strips of tape, clear tape, that have micro dots all over it. So it doesn't impair your view through the window. But when birds are heading towards the window, these dots uh, really confuse them. So they just swerve to avoid your, your glass. So it is something that's definitely preventable. And a lot of people I don't think realize that, you know, They're picking up a few birds every day. So is their neighbor and their neighbor. And those numbers are really in the billions each year of these songbirds that die. So it really is catastrophic, actually. Oh, my goodness. Um, I I just have to take a moment. (laughs) 
It is quite shocking. And uh, <laughs> we just don't, we don't think about these things. Yeah. But uh, on the other hand, we probably save some just through other things that we do. And one of them, particularly for little hummingbirds, is is feeding them the right food. And that's something, Sherry, you have uh, a lot to say about for hummingbirds. Yes, the hummingbird industry is a very popular one because who wouldn't want to see hummingbirds? They're absolutely lovely little creatures. And it is a very huge industry. Um, there is, there's always these very decorative feeders and all of these foods, these colored foods that you can buy. But it is one of those things where there are no government regulations over what can be sold for wildlife. We have Health Canada that oversees our food or pet foods, but nobody looks over what's being sold for wildlife. And some of these pre-made nectars that are being sold out there are absolutely toxic and should not be sold. So you'll often see these jugs of pre-made red fluid. Um, some of them are even making clear fluids now. But if you look at these ingredients, I mean, you can't even pronounce half the words that are in there. And this stuff is, is not appropriate to be sold. Hummingbirds have very tiny organs. They are not meant to be processing things like food colorings and dyes that are put into these, these fluids. So the whole concept of feeding hummingbirds comes from the fact that they drink nectar from plants. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen a lot of recipes mm -hmm. online and many of them, again, are very inappropriate. People tend to think they're, you know, doing nice things by creating some of these nectars with corn syrups and honey. And there's other things out there I've seen that, you know, I, I tend to not even repeat just because people do tend to search these things up and try them. So really proper hummingbird nectar should be four cups of water to one cup of sugar. You should boil the water, take it off the element, stir the sugar till it dissolves and let it cool. And you can leave it in the fridge for up to a couple of weeks so that you've always got some ready to fill the feeder because they do need to be changed one to two times a week. Mm -hmm. And it's very important to, to maintain those because the nectar does mold. Think about you having a, a sugary drink out on the patio and leaving it out there for a few mm -hmm. days. I mean, you wouldn't be drinking that either. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely important to maintain those feeders. And, um, even getting the proper feeders, a lot of the feeders out there today are, are meant to be cute and great for impulse purchases. People see these things and think, oh, isn't that cute? We should try hanging this up. Mm -hmm. But you need to make sure your feeders are able to be cleaned properly, that they open up mm -hmm. to be cleaned and that they're bug proof and wasp proof and that they have purchased because the hummingbirds definitely like to perch while they're drinking. Oh, they do. So they, just... they are a lovely bird, but, you know, yeah, a lot of people think they hover their whole lives away, but they absolutely do love to sit there. And, you know, I had a just this is a great example. I had a couple come into my store just yesterday and they came to buy a hummingbird feeder. They wanted to buy a feeder to put on their window or out their window to entertain their cats, which is a very <laughs> common thing. A lot of people who keep their cats in keep their cats indoors it's called cat tv and uh, that's what they do they we, there's bird feeders you can put out the window and the cats love it but they came in with the idea of this summer putting up a hummingbird feeder for them so when i explained the maintenance involved you know the couple kind of looked at each other and they were like oh i don't i don't know and i said well you know maybe these are not the right feeder for you then because they do require that kind of maintenance and you know, if you're going to start something with the hummingbirds, you want to make sure you either keep that nectar fresh or just don't do it at all. Mm -hmm. So in the end, they decided to get a, a seed feeder for the windows where there is not that kind of maintenance. And 
And that was new information for them too, because people think you just hang the feeder up in spring and leave it full of that nectar all summer and uh, that the hummingbirds will be happy. And of course, that's not the case. So so the education is is a big deal in my store. I'm, I'm very big on making sure people know what they're getting into when they buy feeders. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you wonder what I'm doing, there's I a crazy squirrel if... outside my window looking in the right window. Now? <laughs> yeah, he just left. He was taking a really good look to see what was going on in here. He's like, wow, I think that's the voice of the bird girl in there. That's right. <laughs> and do they call you the bird girl? Oh, yeah. I get yeah. lots of people like, yeah, yeah, the bird girl, the bird lady, yeah, all that stuff. <laughs> um, now, blue jays and other jays, they spend winter here. They always have. Is that correct? Yes. And yeah, they're a year round bird. When I think of them, I, I always think what you're supposed to feed them is peanuts. But how would how would a blue jay have come across a peanut since they're not native to this area? Why, yeah, why, so why do they prefer peanuts? Well, they just, they do love peanuts, but that concept comes from them eating acorns. They're huge uh, eaters Mm -hmm. of acorns from the oak trees. So, you know, peanuts are something more readily available, obviously. But uh, yeah, the acorns are their big natural diet, but they also eat, they, blue jays eat pretty much anything. They eat insects, they eat fruit, they eat nuts. Uh, At the feeders, they eat uh, sunflower seeds, peanuts, suet, they'll, they'll eat almost anything. So they're pretty easy to attract as long as you have a feeder that accommodates them because they are larger than most of the backyard birds. So you need mm-hmm. something more open and accommodating for them. Mm-hmm. But yes, peanuts certainly are their absolute favorite. They, they nest very early too, or they mate very early. I had two outside my window in the maple tree and um, they were busy with each other, you know, in February. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's true COVID. yeah they will start courting and doing things yeah mm-hmm. yeah they're okay. lovely we're going to take another break and we'll be back with you in just a moment to grow or not to grow these are the questions but to find all the answers why not subscribe to canada's local gardener magazine all the right ideas in all the right places You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Stay up to date as we all grow together. And we're back. Sherry, one bird I see all the time through the winter, or I think I see all the time, and you haven't mentioned yet, is a sparrow. They seem so tiny. How do they tough out the winters? So yes, house. So you're probably referring to house sparrows in particular. So house sparrows are an introduced species, and they are true survivors. Um, they're a very aggressive bird, actually. I've often referred to them as the the backyard bird mafia. They live in groups, and they really dominate feeders. They mm-hmm. dominate nesting areas. So they are uh, true survivors. They they eat almost anything. They eat insects and seeds, etc. Um, they also grow additional feathers in winter to help insulate and stay warm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, house sparrows are a bird that unless you've witnessed their aggression, you'd be shocked to hear how aggressive they can be. Um, they are a huge problem with people who put up birdhouses for eastern bluebirds or tree oh. swallows. 
the house sparrows will go into these houses and will break eggs, kill chicks. I've even had instances where the, the mother was protecting her young and the sparrows killed the mother and the young. Oh my goodness. Uh, if they're nesting in your yard and they find a robin's nest or a dove's nest or they're an open concept nest, uh, the sparrows will attack them as well. So they can be pretty violent. That's for sure. Ooh, so they are survivors. Big time. Yes. And, and like I say, very dominant and, and they breed all summer long, you know, they'll have anywhere from three to five broods per summer. So they're always reproducing and um, yeah, they're just a very aggressive bird to some of the desirable species that people want to see. They don't okay. live in a nest though. Do they Sherry? I mean, what birds, what birds like nests besides wrens? Well, sparrows do build a nest, if that's what you mean. Like when they're nesting, they do build a nest. No, I meant, I meant build bird anywhere. They'll use birdhouses. Yeah. Okay. They, yeah, they'll use birdhouses. They'll use, they'll nest, build nests in shrubs. They'll build nests in the vents on sides of people's homes. They're, they're not too picky. Like they will build nests almost anywhere. So, and with birdhouses, yes, if the whole size is big enough for them to fit in, they will go in there. And that's the problem, like I said, with the bluebirds and tree swallows, those holes are large enough that they do go in there and cause these these issues. So, and that's that? only the house sparrows. We do get lots of lovely sparrows that are native here, like white-throated sparrows and chipping sparrows and Harris sparrows, fox sparrows. So we get lots of lovely ones. It's strictly the house sparrows that have this behavior. How did house sparrows come here? I wouldn't think that that would be something somebody would bring with them as a pioneer. Well, there's different, yeah, there's different stories that have been said about it. One, one is that they were deliberately brought here from the UK when a lot of um, those people moved to, to Canada and, and the US and stuff that they were deliberately introduced them here. And then there's also stories that they came on uh, freight you know, because there you often see them around freight yards and mm -hmm. um, that they were on trains and things and were brought here that way. So there's been different stories of how they were brought here, but uh, they have pretty much spread across the world. There's only a few areas that they are not found. So mm -hmm. like say they are true survivors, but interestingly enough, over the past few years, I'd say three to three to five years, there's been a noticeable decline in their populations. Oh, everywhere. So that's something interesting. Yeah. That's something that's kind of being observed at this time. So is it um, climate change? Is it uh, just overbreeding all these years? It's it, There's so many different things people are considering, but it is just remarkable how all of a sudden their numbers have really declined. So outside my, my window, my office window, I can see I have a, a, a spruce tree and a maple tree, and it's a very busy place for birds. And um, yesterday there was a little bird, just a, about the size of maybe a lemon, maybe a little bit bigger, with some blue on it. What was that? That would little. probably be a nuthatch. Yeah, I didn't Are know they had blue hatches. They're kind of like a, blue. yeah, they're like a bluey gray color. Okay. Well, she, he didn't stay very long. Did, yet, long did you notice if it had a long beak or not? No, I just got a quick glance, and uh, then then she was gone, or he was gone, but. Yeah. Uh, they seem to like the, the seeds on the, the maple tree. Is that an attraction for a lot of birds? It is very much so. Yeah, there's a, a lot of birds here definitely use those trees. So they're very busy for birds to be in them. Plus, they're a good shelter, too. They're a good place to hide. And But yes, the seeds are very sought after by a lot of species. 
you can you plant certain uh, trees that will attract birds? So, for example, I have a lot of cedars in my yard and a lot of spruces. Does that help attract them or do they like deciduous trees or do they have preferences? Well, cedar trees are actually one of the trees I don't encourage urge people to plant just because they are huge attractions to the house sparrows and grackles, which for most people are not birds they want to have coming. Grackles are a type of blackbird that can, uh, a whole colony can nest in a cedar tree and, and they're also very messy and very aggressive. So cedar trees, um, as nice of a shelter tree as they are, they tend to attract the things that you don't want coming. But otherwise, spruce trees are lovely. Uh, the maple trees, as you mentioned, and any of the fruit trees, like apple trees, are wonderful because they have so many branches and and offer food, of course. <clears throat> um, oak trees, I mean, those take so long to grow, but obviously an oak tree is a wonderful tree to have. <coughs> Excuse me. And then there's also mountain ash trees, which are great for their berry offerings. And those are great for attracting wax wings, which are a stunning bird. So, yeah, I yeah, was so just going to definitely see my I was going to bring up cedar wax wings or wax wings. Apparently they like to get drunk. They're so beautiful. Well, it's not that they like to get drunk perhaps, but definitely they do get drunk um, because the berries start to ferment on mm. the trees. And it's especially problematic when they freeze and thaw and freeze and thaw because then they ferment even more and have a very high alcohol content. So, yes, you can definitely experience drunk robins and drunk waxlings. And you, you um, don't think... thing is they have the largest litters. Oh, go ahead. You don't think they're, they like to... Uh, they don't, you think oh, they don't like I to get drunk? They do. I think they do. <laughs> <laughs> we, had a, we had a choke cherry tree in our backyard, and the robins would wait until right, they got really, really, really ripe. Then they would come in, and they would have a robin party, and they would be just covered in the tree, and they'd be swooping up and down and... I think they knew exactly what was going on. <laughs> What's interesting is these birds uh, have the largest livers of all birds. And it's believed it's, you know, it is because of the fact that they're of their diet, that the fact is they do eat these fruits and at times that they do have that very high alcohol content in them. So, so yes, it is an unfortunate thing because sometimes when they really are that intoxicated, predators tend to get them. So they're quite vulnerable when that mm -hmm. happens, that's for sure. But uh, yes, we often get calls from people who are really concerned that they've got a flock of drunk birds in their yard. And indeed <laughs> they do. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, we're going to take one more break. And uh, I've got some questions for you about the Northern Trek when we get back. Every issue of Canada's Local Gardener magazine is a valuable resource that you'll want to hang on to for years to come. We'll help you explore the mysteries of the garden so that you can get more out of it. Subscribe to Canada's Local Gardener and get growing with us. Visit localgardener.net. And we're back. Here's something I do know about the Northern Shrike and what it does on black locust trees or on hawthorns or on barbed wire. Do you know about this? Yeah, you're shaking your Yes, they're nodding. often referred to <laughs> they're often referred to as the butcher bird is uh, yeah. a nickname for them because they catch little birds or even mice and voles and they impale them on these spikes of those trees you mentioned 
and will uh, save food for for when they need it. So they'll often, you know, I've even had people who found uh, mice and stuff impaled on chain link fences if there was, <laughs> you know, spikes on there. So, so yeah, they definitely seek out somewhere to stash their food to to come back for it later. See, that's what we were saying about smart birds. They are smart. And, you know, we, it's, right. it's, when we think about birds, we tend to think yeah, songbirds at any rate, that they're, they're delicate little flowers, but they're really, um, they're a full part of the animal kingdom, shall we say. Or more. Absolutely. And yeah. And um, a lot of our South American migratory birds, a lot of people don't know this, but they spend their time in South America in areas where the coffee plantations are. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a huge uh, destination for a lot of our migratory birds like orioles and thrushes. And these areas, unfortunately, what there is now, they're called sun plantations or techna coffee plantations. And what these are is some of the really well-known coffee companies go to these regions and remove all of the canopy of the rainforest. So all of the big ancient old trees, they cut them down and expose the coffee plants. Coffee plants are a low growing shade growing plant. So they cut down all of the forest, all the habitat and expose the coffee plants to the sun, which then they require pesticides and fertilizers because now they're not growing naturally. And they've removed all of the habitat for all of these migratory birds. And this is where they spend, you know, their winters. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them are returning each year to less and less habitat because of these techno coffee plantations. So that's something if you are a coffee drinker, which I know 99% of the population is, you should look for bird friendly coffees. Those mm-hmm. are or shade grown coffees, but there's um, a few lines of coffees out there. They're called triple certified coffee. And those are coffees that are grown in these areas where the habitat is not destroyed and the coffee is grown naturally and it's often organic and fair trade in these cases. So, so that's something the coffee industry is actually also playing a lot of havoc on migratory birds and their populations by the habitat loss. We haven't talked about Orioles, which is one of the beautiful additions to summer. Where do Orioles like to nest? So those are my all-time favorite bird, for sure. They're absolutely spectacular to look at, and their song is just absolutely glorious. And they actually, their preferred trees are poplar trees, and they will nest very high up, and they actually weave a basket. It's almost like Mm -hmm. a little basket that they weave for their, their nests. So it's like a hanging basket. And yeah, they are absolutely glorious birds. And they're another one whose numbers are, are really starting to decline. I've, I noticed even in my own yard about eight or nine years ago, I would easily have, you know, 16 to 20 Orioles in my yard at all times with the things that I was offering them. Mm-hmm. And last year I had two sightings. I saw an Oriole twice yeah, all summer last year. And it's just been awful. So I'm, I'm very worried what each year brings because it really is noticeable how much these birds are are dropping in population. So I'm sure hoping we'll have a better season this year. What do you mean by a hanging basket? It literally is like a, yeah, it's literally a a basket. So they weave, so it, it hangs from the branch and it's like a little basket with an opening at the top. So it's a very deep basket like nest. Yeah, you should Google them to look at them. They're lovely. They're so cute. Yeah. And, and they, it's very intricately woven. It's quite remarkable. They're the guys that like to eat Niger, correct? 
Um, and we have a Niger no, feeder. No, those are finches. Oh, finches. Okay, so what, what do Orioles eat? So they have a bit of an interesting diet. I mean, naturally they eat insects and fruit and blossoms in spring. They eat a lot of blossoms, which contribute to the pollination of trees. But uh, in the backyards, they, they do drink sugar water like hummingbirds do. There's just a different designed feeder for them. Hmm. And they love oranges. And there's no question their absolute favorite food is Welch's grape jelly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It really? is a remarkable <laughs> thing to offer them in my, in my best yeah, my best season, I went through 53 jars of jelly in one summer feeding oh my, my Orioles. It was amazing. <laughs> Did they stay for the winter? Yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. No, they, they're one of the birds that go to the, the South American areas. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, well, I'm thinking about, when you think about going to the South American, the one that blows me away is the little hummingbird flying all that way. I don't know how they do it. They're so tiny. They need so much energy. How do they how do they get there? I mean, they must fly. How many miles is that? It's a couple yes, of thousand miles. Hummingbirds. Yes, it is. Absolutely. And they fly all the way across the Gulf Coast. So they must double in weight before they head out for migration. So that's a, another myth about hummingbirds. There used to be a myth that if you feed them, you have to take the feeder down in the middle of August to make sure they migrate. So that is definitely a big myth because their their instincts to migrate are so strong that, you know, a feeder is not going to be something that's going to make them change their minds about their instincts to migrate. And actually, you want to make sure if your feeder is something they're using for those calories, it's really not a great idea to, to remove it at that time. So you should always leave your feeders up until you're certain they have moved on and left. But yes, they they double in weight and uh, they fly all that way to South America, right across the Gulf Coast. Wow! Yeah, it, well, well, when they're flying for distance, it must be different. the The wing movements must be different from when they're hovering, are they? Yes. Well, hummingbirds, their wings boot. I forget what it is. It's something about a hundred times a second or something, how fast mm -hmm. their wings flap. So, I mean, they're, they're just like little bullets through the air when you see them go. So it is remarkable how, you know, it takes them a, a, a I think I've read it's about a, close to two months in flight for a lot of the migratory birds, like warblers and things. They're, they're a little slower because they, um, stop for a full day to eat and regenerate, but hummingbirds make almost a direct flight. So they're, mm. it's quite unbelievable what they do. do well, do they, they're so small. So they, could they take advantage of the air currents like some of the birds do to get a bit of a rest or no? Oh yeah, definitely. Do they fly Absolutely. that high? Most birds do try to take advantage. They take advantage of those thermals for sure. Yeah. And they do fly quite high just because of the thermals. That's where they try to catch those, uh, easy flows to to make their you know conserve their energy and help them get that much further so do they fly singly or in pairs in groups how do they do it as far as i know with hummingbirds they're more of an independent migrant unlike uh, warblers and other birds tend to congregate in flocks like you'll often see in fall flocks of robins gathering and flocks of warblers gathering so they tend to fly in groups yeah okay well, <clears throat> one last bird um, that I just got to ask you about, and that's the wild turkey. <laughs> They're damaging, aren't they? But I, you, you get them in Toronto, Shauna, in, uh, in the well, not in Toronto, but in, in Ontario for sure. Yeah, and in the in the outskirts of Toronto too, I've heard reports that you have wild turkeys, and they come in fives or something, and they do a lot of damage to trees. In fives. 
threes and fives from they have <laughs> children from the year before that hang oh, okay. around. Okay. So go ahead, Sherry. I I haven't heard much about the damage of trees around here because we do get lots of wild turkeys here in Winnipeg and on the outskirts. Um, again, I know they can be a little bit messy with the droppings they leave behind, but um, I'm not sure what damage or what kind of damage have you heard of them doing? Like they roost in trees, which yeah, is often they roost people in are trees. shocked when they look up and see these huge turkeys perching yeah. in trees. Yeah. And, and I guess they break branches and things like that. From That's what I heard from one of our correspondents in, in Toronto, and that's where she was having the problem. But uh, they're huge birds. Okay. So There's, what do you, you wouldn't feed they one, would are, you? They are, and they're... Some people do. I do have people who do feed them, you know, they'll buy cracked corn and wheat or again, like wild bird mixes that they'll eat. So some people do deliberately feed them. Wow. There is a kind of bird that's, it's a big bird and I can't think what it's called. It will positively, it'll kill a tree when it roosts on it. Do you know what I'm talking about? And it, it has a lot to do with their, their droppings. Huh. I don't know what that one is, but it's, but oh, uh, not sure. Um, no, yeah. it's physical damage when you get a whole flock of these wild mm. turkeys and they're so heavy and they get on the branches of trees and just break them off, strip them down. Mm -hmm. But okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's just about all the questions I have prepared. Well, we're just about out of time, but I, <laughs> there's, you can talk about birds endlessly. There's so much that we don't know and that we're learning and that Sherry does know. Uh, we, just very briefly, one of the things that we have a lot of uh, time for in the summer are ducks. And I'm really mm -hmm. interested in the way ducks are. Like they're not one duck, they're all, they're all different, right? And, and the ones that I think are really interesting is when you go and you see them head down in the, in the water, mm -hmm. what are they doing? They're eating, they're eating, like they're uh, picking for plant matter, basically, on the, on the water bed. So they'll eat different grasses and plant matter in the water. So yeah, when you see their little bums up in the air, that's what they're doing. <laughs> and they're so good with their babies. And we see them here. Sometimes you'll, you'll see, uh, you know, one of the ducks crossing the road with their with their young, uh, just the same. And, and people are great here. They'll stop their cars and just let the ducks go across. Uh, because we have a lot of waterways. What about wood ducks, though? Because that's a big attraction here in Manitoba. Do you get a lot of wood ducks in Ontario, Shauna? I or have you... no idea. Okay, you're not in the, not near a waterway, but Sherry? <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure they there are some out that way, but yeah, they're very desirable birds to see because they're absolutely spectacular. The males are one of the most colorful ducks out there, so they're they were almost hunted to extinction, you know, a long time ago just because of their feathers. Mm -hmm. So thankfully they are, you know, back to good numbers again, but and a lovely bird to see for sure. Do you build them a little platform or something to, to nest on or is that? They actually use bird houses. They use, uh, they nest in the cavities of trees naturally. So there actually are wood duck houses, which are just a very, very large birdhouse, obviously. And, uh, They'll nest in those. So that's a very common thing here in summer. A lot of people who live near the water or on those man-made lakes and stuff will put up wood duck houses to, to encourage them to come. You know, it's really something remarkable. I mean, I, I never noticed how much birds populate my yard because now that I'm working at home and I'm looking outside my window and have these trees in front of me, I, they're, they're just such a joy for, uh, you know, 
just to break up the monotony of a winter day or a summer or a spring day. And in the morning when they sing and they wake you up at mm-hmm. four, you want to go out there and shoo them all away. But it still is a sense of, <laughs> it gives you a sense of joy when you hear them, doesn't it? It does. And, you know, that's something a lot of people experienced this past year with the way our lives have changed um, with people being home more. It's amazing how many people started to pay attention to birds that never had in the past. I mean, I gained a lot of new customers who would come into the store saying, you know, I'm at home working now and uh, we've got these birds coming. I've lived in this house for 35 years. I've never seen these birds. What are they? And 99% of the time, they're birds that are here year round and are always here. But it just showed me how much people are so caught up in life, so to say, that they really don't pay attention to to nature and what's actually in their own backyard. So that is something I really noticed this year that it did open people's eyes to what beauty is around them in nature and how important it is to pay attention to that and spend time in it. It's our greatest medicine, nature our biggest stress reliever. So I always encourage people to take a walk or just sit outside and enjoy what's actually in your backyard and stop paying so much attention to TVs and computers because they don't offer that same joy. There you wow. go. Wow, that's a great way to, to end the That's a beautiful, yeah, that's a beautiful ending. Well, I want to thank you so much, Sherry, for talking to us today. I hope you'll be back to talk to us about birds in summer and birds in fall and all those things. I want to thank you, Mum. And bet. of course. And of course, I want to thank the Government of Canada for giving us the funding to do this. Always wonderful to see you, Sherry, and thank you, Shauna. Um, oh. Go out there and feed the birds. <laughs> okay. You bet. Thank you. Bye. Bye.